begin our time in prayer, and then we will uh, continue worshiping God through the studying of his word. So, Father, we come before you because you tell us we can. As your children, you have given us full access to your throne room, your throne room of grace, that we might receive mercy and grace. And we come before you as your children, seeking to be about your kingdom's work and in your will, to understand more of you and understand who we are in you and our, and our identity that you have now given us. Some of us are here and we're seeking you, Lord. We don't know you, they don't know you as their, as their God, but they're curious. So right now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would just engulf this room, continue to move as you've already moved us in worship, continue to prepare our hearts for what you've laid out in your word that is eternal, that's living and active. Father, we ask that you correct us, rebuke us, train us, reprove us, whatever needs to happen in our hearts this morning. Father, you know it better than even than we do. So we submit to you now, ask your will be done and your kingdom come, and we pray for your, the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that we have fallen short, Lord, of your holiness and the holy calling you've given us. Use me as your instrument of your righteousness. Don't let me get in your way. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is not from you. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are uh, going to be wrapping up the Beatitude, which is found in the, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We've been looking at one verse for the last several weeks. This morning we're actually going to tackle three. Um, so hang on, um, but we'll see how this all goes together. Um, so we've been walking through the Beatitudes and seeing how Jesus has been defining what is the blessed life. And the Beatitude we come to this morning, beginning in verse 10, and we'll run through verse 12 of chapter 5, we come to the straightforward, even blunt honesty of Jesus Christ as he summarizes the blessed life. And what Jesus says in these verses is probably not what we would expect for him to tell us if we were to be living by God's word, if we were to be doing the right thing that God has called us to do. We would normally expect, because the world we live in, when you do the right thing and you do good things, that good things will happen. But we're beginning in verse 3 and running through verse 10, Jesus has been defining what the blessed life is for us. The word blessed can be defined as joy-filled or happy but it's not an emotional response. As you read through those Beatitudes, you can see it's not an emotional response. Instead, it is a life that is centered on a relationship with God by doing God's will and by living out God's word through our life. That is the blessed life. And as Jesus begins defining this, the, verse, the first four are really focused on our relationship with God and our pursuit of God. Blessed are the poor spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the blessed life begins with a desperation for God. A desperation not just in our salvation, but a desperation throughout our day. It begins with a brokenness before God, realizing that we are sinful people and God is a holy God and He has called us into His holiness and to be holy. It begins with a dependence upon God and an insatiable desire for God in our life, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then as we begin with the blessed life focused on our relationship with God and, and it begins to flow out in the people that God has placed in our life, we see that to live the blessed life also 
allows us to show mercy to people. It reveals to people we have an undivided loyalty to God. We are pure in heart. It, it is to be a peacemaker and to seek peace with people. And finally, Jesus comes to today, which we probably would not under, want to uh, believe that's, this is what's going to happen, and tells us the reaction the world is going to have to us when we live the blessed life. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That word persecute in the Greek carries the meaning of being hunted. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines persecution as the suffering or pressure be it mental, moral, or physical, which authorities, individuals, and crowds inflict on others, especially when it comes to opinions and a belief. And so as you're reading through these Beatitudes, and I'm sure many of you read these before, we almost want to tell Jesus to hit the brakes for a second. We would be, if we're in this crowd, I, my, me personally, if I was in this crowd, I would hear all that Jesus says about being pure in heart and being peacemakers and, and, and being, having hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he comes to this point where, blessed are you who are persecuted. I would say, what? <laughs> uh, no, thank you. And the Jewish people in this time were being heavily persecuted by the Roman Empire, so it wasn't a foreign concept. Now, as I was in high school, my junior year, we had a, a very godly man who was our football coach. And during two-a-days, and when I was in high school, just to date myself, two-a-days were actually two-a-days. Um, you know, it wasn't like from 7 to noon or whatever, and you did a big clump, and you go in in the morning, and then you come back in the heat of the day, and, you know, kids would be passing out. But it was okay then, I guess. So we did that. But I, my high school coach, my junior year, was a very godly man. And the very first day of two-a-days, he sat us all down and gave us a very stern warning about some of the activities we may associate ourselves with. So he told us that he knows there's parties. He hears of the parties. He's not an idiot, and he's not deaf. But if you are at a party, speaking to me and the other football players, even if you're not engaging in the festivities of that party, and that party gets busted, you will be punished because you, you will be guilty by association. And I use that analogy because it brings us to the understanding of what Jesus is saying here. Instead of being guilty, though, Jesus says that we are now righteous by association. In, verses, in these three verses, Jesus gives us two reasons why we will be persecuted. And one thing we are to remember in the midst of persecution, and in doing so, he takes on a false belief that I have encountered numerous times in my time in ministry from believers I've heard this numerous times in ministry. Someone has come up to me and they have said, and a fellow believer, that they live by this code. Do good things and good things will happen. Anybody ever heard that before? If you do good things, then good things will happen to you. And I've heard this from believers, and there are many false teachers who preach this as gospel. But I want to tell you, if you're holding on to this code of life, you need to understand this is a false gospel. 
This code is not found in Scripture. And if you look in verses 10 through 12, you can see that that's not what Jesus says. He says actually the exact opposite. If you live right and you do the things that God tells you to do, you're going to be persecuted. The closest thing in Scripture that backs up the idea that if I do good things, good things will happen comes from Matthew 7, verse 12. And Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But notice in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus does not say by doing what you wish others to do to you that they will in fact do those things to you. He just says that we have a higher calling in the way we live and how we treat people. Now, the belief in doing good things and good things will happen to you, here it is, if you've held on to this belief, is connected to Hinduism and Buddhism. These are false religions. These are false prophets that are leading people to hell. In other words, if that is your code, you're placing your faith in a false religion's teaching. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, if you live righteously, you can expect persecution. He says, if you live for him, you can expect to be mocked. You can expect to be insulted. You can expect to be lied about, and you can expect this world to persecute you, to hunt after you. So this morning, our goal is to look at why persecution comes, and Jesus gives us two reasons in, in verses 10 and 11. Then we're going to see, uh, seek to remember what we are to think on and keep our hearts on in the midst of persecution. And finally, we're going to see what persecution does for our witness, because there are actually benefits to it. So why does persecution come is our first question. Verse 10 and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my my account. So Jesus tells us the reason, the first reason persecution comes is because we are living righteously. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the Old Testament, righteousness involves the fulfillment of the demands of a relationship, either with God or with other human beings. It's centered on an individual's covenant relationship with the covenantal God, that God is their God and he has claimed them as his people. And so Jesus' audience here in Matthew 5 would have understood an individual would be righteous if they adhered to or lived by the law of God because that would put them in a right relationship with God. Hence, Joseph Jesus' earthly father was called a righteous man or a just man because he lived by the word of God. He allowed that to guide him and lead him. So in the New Testament, the same definition applies. But now here's the beauty of the New Testament and the new covenant that God has made. Now righteousness is found for an individual who's now placed their faith in Christ's perfect righteousness because Christ fulfilled the law. So our righteousness now, if we call ourselves a believer, is connected to our salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. So we're living for Christ. And Jesus is saying, this is why the world is going to respond to you with persecution is because we are found in him. And here's the good news about persecution. If we are persecuted for righteousness, that means the world sees Christ in us. And that's what we want. We want the world to see Christ in us and his righteousness. And if you look into the book of Acts, 
and you look in world history, you can see this is exactly what the world does to those who have called upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. William Barclay writes that it is inevitable because the church, when it is really the church, is bound to be the conscience of the nation and the conscience of society. And so where there is good, the church must praise. And where there is evil, the church must condemn. And inevitably, men will try to silence the troublesome voice of conscience. But insult awaits the man who insists on Christian honoring. Mockery awaits the man who practices Christian love and Christian forgiveness. Actual persecution may await the Christian in industry who insists on doing an honest day's work. Christ still needs his witnesses. He needs those who are prepared not so much to die for him, but those who are ready to live for him. In verse 11, Jesus lays out another reason of persecution. He says, it's on my account which means that we aren't living for ourselves. We aren't promoting ourselves or our agenda. We are living and promoting Christ out of our life. And so struggles an unbelieving world has with the church and struggles that an unbelieving world has with believers, I believe in part is because we have self-inflicted them. We have not been promoting Christ. We have not been living for Christ. But another struggle that the unbelieving world has with the church and believers is that we proclaim the truth of Scripture. We hold to this as absolute truth, and we allow God's Word to be our guide and to lead us, which is countercultural to the world. Just think about what we believe because of what we find in God's Word. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we believe that God created all things. What does the world teach? world teaches these scientific theories that can't be proven that all things either spontaneously combusted or they came from nothing. But we believe because God created all things and he created all people in his image, he gave us a purpose. When the world lives by theories, they have no purpose. If we came from nowhere and when we die, we go nowhere, what's the point of it all? And God says, I am. And that's found in his word. We believe in absolute truth. What's absolute truth? Absolute truth means it is truth for every person in every place at every time of, of, of life. Absolute truth. But if you look at the world, the world likes to spin lies and likes to use relative truth that suit their own purposes. But we believe this is the absolute truth. We believe in the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. We believe that God has created two genders, male and female. We believe in the sanctity of human life instead of permitting genocide of the unborn. We believe there are only two types of people on this world. You are either saved or you are unsaved. You either belong to God or you don't. But look what the world believes. They like to promote diversity through race, religion, and gender. We believe the Bible, God's word, calls us to a certain standard of living, and we believe we need to live by those things even if the world may permit the opposite. We believe we are to live and die for Christ instead of living for material possessions, monetary gain, or worldly luxuries. We believe God is the ultimate authority. You know what that means? We're not. We believe all things come from God, not from an employer, not from a government, but he is the provider. 
We believe, and I believe this is the biggest problem the world has with Christianity. Because when we proclaim Christ, this is what we proclaim. That we believe we need Christ. Because we know we are sinful. And you know what people hate to admit? That something's wrong with them. You know what they even hate more? They can't fix it. But that is the gospel message. We had sin, which we could not fix ourselves, but it could only be fixed and forgiven in Christ. So the gospel message we proclaim and are lived by states at its foundation, God is God, and therefore we are not, and we are helpless and powerless to make our way to God on our own. And when the world sees our code for life is Christ above all, this creates the problem in the way of for persecution. As a believer, persecution isn't something Christ is telling us to run to. He never says that in Scripture. But Scripture also does not give us permission to run from it. Hear what God says in his word in the Gospel of John. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In 2 Timothy, God tells us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. book of James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, and you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. For those of you who attend Wednesday night adult Bible study, we'll be in 1 Peter here in a couple weeks. 1 Peter is written to a body of believers who are going through persecution. They are going through suffering because of their faith. And 1 Peter, through God's word, is calling them in the midst of the persecution, the suffering, to remain faithful. It opens up in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he goes on, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. If you were to read through the book of Acts, you would see that the people of this world have been set out to persecute the royal priesthood of God. And this happens because of the way we live. God calls us out of the darkness into his marvelous light, and then he leads us as our shepherd to live by his word, which is countercultural to this world, and it makes the world uncomfortable. And what does the world do when it gets uncomfortable? Well, just think about this last year. When the world didn't like something in someone's past or what someone said or what someone stood for, what'd they do? Cancel. Cancel it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to work through it. We're just going to cancel it. 
And so the world is seeking to cancel Christianity through the pressures and the calling of names. And, you know, we're bullheaded. We're closed-minded. We're outdated. We're just stubborn. Because the people of this world cannot stand people who live according to the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible reveals people of this world could not stand Jesus, God in the flesh. They were with God in the flesh physically, and they couldn't stand him. So if we represent him in this world, we can expect the world to respond the same way. And even though this news would have been shocking, I think, to Jesus' original audience, it may be shocking to us this morning, Jesus then tells us how to respond, remembering that this pattern, this has been a pattern that has been going on for centuries. He says in verse 12, you're going, to, or, or, you're going to be persecuted for righteous snake. You're going to be persecuted on my account. And this is how I respond. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice because you're being persecuted. Be glad that you're being persecuted. And the double call here say, is to be exceedingly joy-filled. Have an overwhelming and an unrestrained gladness when you're persecuted because of Christ. Why? Because we're not seeking worldly reward. He says our reward is going to be great in heaven. So our treasure is in heaven. And so we're not seeking things of this world. We're seeking the eternal because the things of this world, Scripture tells us, are all going to fade away. And the possessions of this world can be, can be taken from us. They can be stolen. They fall apart, but not the eternal reward. It's unfading. It's undefiled. It's eternal. So we rejoice and be glad because we're experiencing the patterns of this world, which Jesus points out. You look in your own history, speaking to a Jewish audience, look back in your history. Think about how did they treat the prophets? How did they treat the people who were the spokesmen for God, who called out to this world to repent, called out to this world to awaken and come back to God, to revival, and they pronounced judgment on the world because of God's holiness? How did the people respond when that message was presented? They persecuted him. They tried to kill him. They canceled him. We'll get our own prophets. See, when we associate ourselves with Christ and his righteousness... And we speak of Christ and his righteousness, the world will repeat this pattern of behavior in opposing our association. The result of being persecuted is seen in verse 10 and verse 12. For being persecuted of Christ, the result is the kingdom of heaven and a great reward in heaven. It speaks of a present reality and a future coming. We live for the kingdom. As God's people, we live for the kingdom. Now, if we're going to be persecuted, maybe even to the point of death, guess what? That means we died for the kingdom. And then what does that mean for us as believers? We live again, but now we're in the kingdom. That's a win-win. <laughs> so we rejoice and we be glad. The final thing this morning is to understand what enduring persecution for Christ does for our witness. The first thing is persecution shows our loyalty to Christ. When we're persecuted for living for Christ and by God's word, we state to this world that we are more loyal to our Lord than our own life. It states that we value Christ more than our own welfare and maybe even more than our own life if need be. 
Second thing, persecution shows we understand the price that was paid. When we endure persecution for Christ, the world sees that we understand it was a heavy price that was paid for our sins, that we might be forgiven and be given eternal life. The world needs to see we're willing to be persecuted for what saved us. Because we know if we don't endure the persecution, we lie to the world and say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. But Jesus paid it all. Third thing persecution does is it shows our allegiances to the kingdom. We do not belong to this world or its beliefs. The Bible defines if you're in Christ, if you call yourself a Christian or a believer, the Bible defines you now as a sojourner and exile. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. Other versions have it as aliens and strangers. The meaning is the same. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. And so we show our allegiance to the kingdom when we are persecuted because we understand that. That we value where we're going more than where we are in this moment. We don't fit. We don't belong, so we don't live by the standards of the world because we've been called to a higher calling. And we all know or have experienced, what do kids do when other kids don't fit in? They pick on them, don't they? They bully them. And that's what the world is doing to us as Christians. We don't fit in here, so they're going to pick on us. They're going to bully us because they're acting like children. We also see persecution shows our witness to others. Persecution reveals what we deem to be important. And it can be used by God for his glory, for someone who may be younger in the faith and may be dealing with the same things. Like, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. Because I have exactly what they have, the Holy Spirit and Christ in me. But it also reveals to the world or someone seeking the faith that what we believe is important. Finally, persecution shows our utmost pursuit. Our utmost pursuit is not in things. It's not in religions. It's not in theories or ideologies and paychecks, mentalities, pleasures, luxuries, possessions, or anything of this world. Our utmost pursuit is to be Christ. And since Christ is our utmost pursuit, and since the enemy no longer has control over our souls or even access to it, the enemy now is going to set things against us when we live for Christ. And that may be people, that may be things, because the enemy wants to keep God's people from pursuing after Christ and becoming passionate about Christ. Let me tell you, when you pursue after Christ and become passionate about Christ, you cannot help but proclaim Christ passionately to a world that needs him. And so the enemy is going to try to stop you anytime you try to do this because he wants to keep you quiet. He wants to keep, let's keep Christ in your cute little building. Let's keep Christ in your cute Bible studies and your cute meetings and gatherings and not take him out to a world that needs to hear him. What do we do when this persecution comes? Well, we look in Scripture. In the book of Acts, Peter and John were persecuted because they were preaching Christ. They're actually told in what we would say today to shut up, stop talking about him. And they say we can't help because of what we've seen and heard to preach Christ, to proclaim him. And as they were thrown in prison, they eventually were released. And when they came to gather with God's people after being persecuted, even to threat of death over them, you know what they did? 
They prayed for boldness. And they asked the other believers, hey, let's all pray for boldness. Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian faith. And when he was being stoned to death, you know what he did? He preached the gospel boldly. Apostle Paul did the same throughout his ministry, being persecuted numerous times throughout the book of Acts. Even at one point, they thought he was dead. They thought they had killed him, so they drug him out of town and left his body there. And what did he do? He wakes up and walks back into town the next day. Do you know what he does? He preaches boldly the word of Christ. And he tells Timothy, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering and uncertainty, to continue to be bold in the faith and preach Christ. We are righteous by association to Christ, and since Christ was bold in dying for us, we must be bold in living for Christ. We have the message the world needs. They don't need another stimulus check. They don't need a new law. They don't need something to change in the Constitution. They need Christ. And so we have to be willing to be persecuted for preaching Christ. And who will be associated with? We'll be associated with those who have done it in the past. To conclude this morning, I'd like to turn to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in the latter part of verse 20, And God's word says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. We've been called to do good and to suffer for it and endure. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And the word tree there is speaking of the cross. Why did he do it? That we might die to sin... And live to what? Righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like strained, you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I turn to this passage to wrap up about persecution, to understand that this is what they did to Christ. But I also turn here to extend the invitation. For anyone here this morning who may not be in Christ. It says that he bore our sins in his body. When it says that, it, it, it's meaning to tell us they were not his sins. They were not his wrongdoings. They were not his fault. But he took them as his own. This passage says that he took our punishment. He paid our price on the cross so that we might be forgiven it might be given eternal life. This is what Christ did for us. And he invites us by his sacrifice and his resurrection to accept him as our Lord and Savior, to find forgiveness for our sins and be given eternal life. And if we've already done that, then he reminds us here that, look, if you're going to live for me, you're going to suffer like me. But it's going to be worth it because you belong to the shepherd and overseer of your soul.
But you may be here this morning and Christ is not your Lord and Savior. And so I want to extend the invitation that I accepted many years ago that God spoke to my heart. If you know that you are not saved, that means you're not forgiven. That means you're not going to heaven. The Bible says you need to come before God and admit to God that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of the glory of God. You're not perfect. You're not living holy. And the Bible says when we admit our sins to God, what we're doing is we're admitting that we have fallen short of His standard, not ours or not the world's. But then the Bible gives us this great news that if we just believe that Jesus Christ took our blame by dying on the tree on the cross and rising again, if we place our faith in that and believe that to be true, the Bible says then we're at the very brink of eternal life. The final step is to confess Him as Lord and Savior. Confess that you need Christ and you want to be found in Christ and you want to be given the Holy Spirit sealed for eternity and belonging to God. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to do that, or you're unsure if, if that's something you've ever done, I'm going to be standing down here and you just come down and say, Pastor Mike, I, I want to be saved. I want to be found in Christ. Maybe you're here and you've already done that. And there's been times you've kind of shied away from proclaiming Christ because you're worried what people may think or what they may say or may, how they may react to you. And you know that's wrong and that needs to change. It's time for us to be bold. It's time for us to be bold. This world is slowly slipping further and further away from God. And we've got the news right here that can change it. I'm going to ask the fetters to come back up and lead us in a time of worship and invitation. I want to pray over us real quick. And now I want to invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Lord, thank you that you don't hide anything from us. You don't try to make it nice and fluffy. You give us the reality that we are in a spiritual battle. And there are people in our lives that are going to hell this very moment. But we have the message that can change it. Let us be bold in preaching and proclaiming you. Father, I praise you that you know every heart in this place. You know every heart that belongs to you and every heart that doesn't. And for those that are here that are not your children and their heart is stirring, Father, I, I pray that the courage of the Spirit would come upon them and they would come down the aisle and let it be known they want to be found in you. They want to be saved and forgiven. We give this time to you and ask that you alone be glorified in it. We praise all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing and I invite you to come.